The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, uh, let us continue on the first noble truth. And uh, we have just looked at death and why death is dukkha and suffering. Uh, and uh, so let's move on to the next elements here. Uh, we have in the same, uh, we're still on the same sutta, the very first one. Uh, and uh, uh, the next, it says here, it says association with the disliked is suffering. Uh, separation from the liked is suffering. Not getting what you want or what you wish for is suffering. Uh, and uh, so these three are obviously very uh, closely related to each other and we could talk about all of those three in one go perhaps but um, uh, let's just start with association with the dislike start from the beginning and we maybe we can talk a little bit about at least the first two ones uh, so association with the disliked uh, and uh, obviously this means any time that you kind of have to deal with things that are unpleasant in life which is quite regularly uh, always unpleasant things happening here uh, and that's just the way, again, the nature of life, the point of these things, that this is the nature of existence. Yeah, you can't really do anything about this. Uh, and uh, the, one of the problems of life is that we try, we want to control things, we want to sort things out uh, in a way where we can avoid this, at least uh, to some extent. But there is just a limit to how much influence we have on uh, the external circumstances. And because of that, we can expect that we will, uh, these things will happen here. Uh, so association with the disliked is something you can expect in life. And the moment you understand that you can expect it, uh, it also changes your attitude to some extent. Uh, yeah, Because if you can expect it, there's nothing you can do about it, uh, then you stop trying to control so much. Uh, and when you stop trying to control, you realize that getting upset and angry is also not all that useful. Uh, upset and anger very often comes from the idea that we can control you get angry and then the idea of controlling it kind of comes with that uh, when you realize that you can't control these things you you take a different attitude uh, and that different attitude doesn't mean that you kind of just become a doormat and you allow yourself to be you know abused and all these kind of things not at all uh, what it means is that you take a wiser strategy to how to overcome these things rather than uh, getting upset and angry and trying to use willpower to get out of it. Uh, so that's the first one, association with the disliked. What are some typical example? A typical example is like uh, bodily pain. Yeah, bodily pain, you can do a, a little bit about it. You can sit in meditation, you can change your posture. And I would really recommend you to do that, not constantly but if there is a persistent pain in the body i think it's a good idea to change your posture so you don't have that persistent uh, problem in your body and you will notice that when you meditate sometimes the mind goes to the body uh, and you become almost like obsessed uh, with the pain or the problem uh, and when you see that your mind goes back and back to the problem again and again you can't really let go of it uh, it's usually that's usually a good sign that you need to change your posture uh, because it means that the mind has a uh, uh, there's too much interest there because it really is a problem yeah in a, in a deep deep sense uh, so then you change your posture overcome it for a while and then you see what happens next uh. 
So bodily pain is one of these things that we can never really overcome fully. In fact, the bodily body tends to be a little bit irritating a lot of the time. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why deep meditation is so pleasant. Uh, yeah, big part of that is actually getting rid of the body for a while. Uh, because the body is heavy, it is kind of, you know, it uh, has, has all these uh, things associated with it. It's very hard to kind of go a whole day without having some pains and problems in the body. Every time you move, uh, yeah, you s when we move almost constantly, it's because the body is not entirely comfortable, not entirely at ease. Uh, so you move because of that. Uh, so and that is very common, yeah? You scratch a little bit, <laughs> then straight away, because there's some discomfort going on there. Yeah. So, uh, and one, once you get that, that the body will never be entirely comfortable, uh, it means that your attitude to the body starts to change. Uh, you, instead of trying to be comfortable, you are more accepting of pains and problems in the body. And once you become more accepting of it, uh, it means that you are able to let go of that negative reaction that is so common uh, to, to these, these things. Uh, yeah, something is wrong with me, doctor, have a pain. Actually, nothing is wrong with you because you have a pain. Something is right with you because you have a pain. Uh, you can expect that, uh, yeah? And then uh, you don't become so negative. And this is very important when it comes to things like chronic pain. These are some of the most debilitating and difficult things to deal with. Uh, and But uh, in the end, really, what you have to do is just you have to somehow learn gradually over time. And it's difficult. Uh, and it's easy for someone to say who doesn't have any chronic pains, it's easy to, to tell other people what to do. And, and I don't really want to do that. But uh, in the end, the best strategy is to learn acceptance in some way or another, to understand this is the nature of things. If you can't do anything about it, uh, there's no point in always trying to seek an escape, getting out of it, uh, because you're just going to get frustrated. Uh, and eventually you uh, you will lose your patience and it will upset you and be you get angry about it. And of course, I understand why people get angry about these things. Uh, still, it is useful to try to find another way around it because you become more comfortable that way. You have less trouble. Yeah, at least you can. As it says in the suttas, there's two darts in the heart. And the first dart is the physical dart, the dart of the senses. Uh, and the second dart is the dart of the mind, how we react to those things. Uh, and if you can pull out one of the darts, uh, then already you have gone a long way towards uh, uh, resolving the problem. Uh, so this is how we have to, you have to know when physical pain can be dealt with by moving or whatever. At other times, you're just going to have to accept. Yeah? And this is really the best way. And if you can do, do that, then you have kind of, uh, uh, you, there's already a lot of wisdom yeah, in that. Uh, and hard to do, but it can be done here. Uh, Another example of uh, associating with a dislike that is impossible to overcome is uh, uh, he other people saying things to us that are unpleasant. Uh, yeah, and again, this happens almost every day. Uh, people say something is very hard. Yeah, you turn on the TV and they hear unpleasant things straight away. So don't turn on the TV. Keep the TV off. That's often a good idea. Don't kind of go on the internet. And lots of unpleasant things happen on the internet. So keep away from the internet. <laughs> And uh, again, this is unavoidable. Yeah, it's part of life. People, why? Because uh, people's conditioning is such uh, that they will say unpleasant things. Uh. And again, once you get that, once you understand that this unpleasantness in the world is unavoidable, uh, you start reacting to it in a different way. Uh. 
instead of getting angry and upset or negative when someone says something they shouldn't be saying, uh, instead you think, oh yeah, this is the nature of the world. Uh, people are like this. Uh, and getting upset about it is not really going to solve the issue. Uh, in fact, very often getting upset is going to make it worse. Uh, so you realize the, uh, uh, the nature of, of these things. Uh, this is the way it has to be. People just are this way. Uh, and very often if you get upset with somebody because they get upset with you, uh, then uh, very often it may make things worse. Yeah, if you are really cool, if someone else says something bad, very often it kind of, uh, uh, they start to think about what they're saying because they, it's almost as if, if you become upset in return, uh, then it kind of legitimizes their anger or whatever it is that they have. Uh, but if you are cool about it, uh, if you can have compassion for the person who's saying something stupid, it's very powerful because they start to become, straight away you become a bit self-conscious. Uh, yeah, you think, wait a minute, what am I doing here? You start to, it's almost like you, you know, that old uh, saying that you become like a mirror to the other person. Uh, that's often what happens. Uh, and then they can actually start to understand what is going on. So very often being cool about things uh, or even having compassion for someone who is uh, silly in this way can be very powerful in these situations. Uh, it's natural to get angry because we feel that it is personal. Uh, but remember, it is never personal. It's always the conditioning of the other person. That is the problem. Uh, it's natural to get angry. But remember, it's not personal. Uh, it's got nothing to do with you. It's got all to do with the other person. Uh, and once you get that, it's got to do with the other person. Then you can have compassion. Because they are creating, again, suffering for themselves. Uh, anyone who says stupid things uh, and who is silly uh, always creates suffering for themselves in the long run. And then you can have compassion because nobody really wants to do that. Uh, so uh, this is how you use this kind of reflection to understand the nature of things. Uh, and that anger usually is not a very useful uh, reply or a useful kind of uh, response to other people's silliness and stupid speech. Uh, it doesn't mean that you should get angry with yourself for getting angry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Please don't do that. That's the kind of never-ending cycle. We get angry with self getting angry. Then we get angry for getting angry by getting angry. Uh, and on and on, ad infinitum. It carries on like that. There's no, <laughs> there's no end to that. Uh, so please don't do that either. Have compassion for yourself as well. It is natural in the human realm to get a bit upset sometimes when other people treat us in unfair ways. Yeah, that's okay. You have compassion for yourself. You have compassion for the other person. Uh, and in this way, you kind of... you. Uh, have a more gentle and soft approach to the world uh, and it's very uh, very it's so useful yeah in a society when there is so many things so much kind of uh, bad speech going on everywhere uh, it's very nice to have a few people who can go against that current and stream of bad speech uh, if you can be kind on the internet wow you've done something that's really really hard to do <laughs> and very rare in this world uh. so if able to do that it's wonderful uh. And you can become a light, yeah, a beacon of light and hope to the world uh, in difficult times. And there are many things like this. Bodily pain and, and speech are two of the areas of association with the dislike that is very common. Uh, and uh, you could, of course, expand that out almost indefinitely. Uh, yeah, like It means any kind of separation or any kind of anything that happens, any kind of negative thing that happens could really be included in that. But this is kind of the way to reflect on these things. It is unavoidable. And then you can become a bit more cool about things once you get that. Uh, and uh, separation from the liked, yeah, it's a very similar, it's just like kind of the opposite uh, uh, 
the opposite, the reverse in a sense situation, separation from the light, uh, which uh, uh, this particular uh, reflection is exemplified in the suttas when the Buddha, there's a uh, suttas where the Buddha talks about certain reflections that we should be doing all the time. Uh, and one of those reflections that he talks about is the reflection of uh, I must be separated uh, from everything that is dear and pleasing to me. Uh, yeah, I must be separated from everything that is dear and pleasing to me. This is a reflection that should be done regularly according to the Buddha. What are the five, re the five reflections uh, in the, this particular sutta? Is uh, first of all, uh, illness. Yeah, I must. Illness is kind of uh, um, is my na is my nature to become ill? Is my nature to become old? Is my nature to die? Then I must be separated from everything dear and pleasing to me. And the last one is kama, that uh, I'm the heir of my kama. These are five of these kind of fundamental reflections uh, that are very useful for anyone in this world, whether as a layperson or as a monastic. Yeah. Specifically mentions lay people and monastics uh, in this particular sutta, which is quite unusual in a sense, uh, but this is specifically mentioned here. Uh. So this idea of being separated from everything that is dear and pleasing to us. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's very useful thing, and it comes back to this idea before of uh, borrowed goods. Uh, everything in life is borrowed. Everything is temporary. Uh, it's a harsh reality, isn't it? Uh, it's, but it's still, nevertheless, it is true, and we know it's true, uh, because that's just—it's uh, obvious when you think about it. Uh, and uh, this idea means things like before we talked about the death contemplation, and that is. Uh, uh, you know, when we die, but this kind of contemplation is more like when other people die, when we lose people in our life. Uh, yeah, this would be separated from everything that is dear and pleasing to us, uh, or anything we own in life, or all of these things, or status, or whatever it is. Uh, all of these things uh, are part and parcel of this, uh, and very, uh, very kind of again, very useful uh, reflection to keep in mind because it is just so obviously true uh, that this must be the case. So uh, uh, don't underestimate these reflections. Uh, yeah, If they are there in the sutta specifically mentioned by the Buddha, uh, they must be important. Uh, yeah, And it kind of again changes your attitude. You look at things in a different way. The world becomes different. Your values become different. You seek happiness in a new way. You uh, try to get rid of suffering in a new way by thinking about the world in this way. Uh. So it's very, uh, very powerful uh, in this sense. Uh, and um, then we have the last one, not getting what you wish for uh, is suffering. Yeah, and again, this is just a reality. Uh, we wish for things. Uh, we're not going to get those things by wishing, even though we wish. Uh, and uh, the way to get them uh, is instead by the spiritual practice. Uh, what is it that we wish for? We wish we don't want to die, we don't want to get sick, we don't want to get old, etc., etc., etc. You can expand it out indefinitely. And uh, you don't overcome those things by wishing. You overcome them by, again, by spiritual practice. So. Okay, so uh, uh, these things I have been talking about uh, so far, uh, these are all kind of obvious truths. Uh, and for that reason, there are things that all of you can reflect on uh, in your own life. Uh, yeah, because anyone can understand what is going on here. Uh, and I would really recommend you to do so. These are the kind of fundamental aspects of the spiritual path. Uh, and uh, even though they are fundamental, doesn't mean they are basic. Uh, yeah, it doesn't mean that they are kind of for 
dummies or anything like that uh, yeah <laughs> and sometimes that there's a big difference between being intelligent and being wiser and uh, intelligence doesn't necessarily mean you are wiser I remember Ajahn Brahma was talking about some of the professors he had at Cambridge University because he went to Cambridge and of course at Cambridge University you have scholars of the highest caliber you have lots of people with Nobel Prizes and these sort of things and he always said that some of those people they had complete private lives that were a complete mess yeah <laughs> they were utterly incompetent when it came to actually living in a wise way and it shows you that wisdom and intelligence are two very separate things so uh, anyone has a chance to be wise. It doesn't matter. Kind of, you don't have to be very intelligent at all. Uh, and uh, the point is that these things are, are gradual truths uh, that over time start to become powerful. Uh, so please make them your own. Uh, one thing is listening to someone else expounding these things. Uh, but when you make these things your own truths, uh, that is when they become powerful. Uh, so find ways of thinking about these things. Don't be too kind of get into formulas and form formulaic ways of thinking here. Because if you are too formulaic, it doesn't really touch you as deeply here. Try to think about these things in more creative fashions that work for you. How, what, how do these things relate directly to your life? Yeah? And when you are, instead of using formulas, uh, you start to think about these things in a more expansive kind of fashion, uh, that is where often uh, these things become very uh, uh, very useful to you because they come your personal truth that relate to your specific uh, circumstances, uh, your life. Uh, and they actually, th th this is how you make them very powerful. Uh. Too often, it is too easy to kind of get into certain formulas. Okay, you do the metta meditation in one way, you always do it in the same way. And sometimes if you do things too formulaically, it actually loses some of its power. Uh. Why? Because after a while, anything you do again and again and again all the time in this way, uh, after a while it becomes like a blunt instrument. Uh, it, does, it loses, it, the mind is no longer interested because it is boring, it is too familiar. Uh, and anything that is boring and too familiar, if the mind isn't interested, uh, that is where the weakness is. Uh, that is why it doesn't catch you, it, doesn't, uh, it stops to bite, it stops to have, a, have an effect, effect on you in the same way. So if you be a little bit more creative, uh, if you make it your own by thinking about these things in the right way, then they start to really happen. And that's why you will have noticed before I was talking about some of these things, I, I always like to bring in a few personal anecdotes because that uh, is my experience with these things. Yeah, That is what makes them come alive in my own life. Uh, and please do the similar thing in your life to see, uh, to, to deal with this. Uh. Okay, so uh, that is the uh, kind of the obvious part of the first noble truth. Uh, and now we come to the part which is less obvious, uh, which actually is very profound. Uh, to say less obvious is again one of these understatements. It is actually the very profound aspect of the first noble truth. Uh, and this is where you need insight to really understand what is going on here. And this is this very last part here. In brief, the five grasping aggregates are suffering here. So wh wh what does this mean? Grasping aggregates? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really... Uh, I, I think that translation to my mind is not, uh, perhaps not ideal. Yeah, if you, if you are been a Buddhist for a long time and you know what is meant by aggregates, then you kind of, it sort of works. But uh, if you are new to Buddhism, well, the five grasping aggregates must be kind of a bit of a, a super duper obscure, to say the least. Uh, 
ag aggregates that grasp? What is it? Aggregate to grasp? Well, this is really weird. Well, aggregate often these days means like gravel or something like that. Yeah, something you mix into your concrete. Uh, the grasping gravel. Okay. <laughs> this is <laughs> so. Um, what this means, uh, aggregate here, the Pali word is kanda, and kanda is like an aspect of your personality, an aspect of your person. And so what the Buddha does, he um, defines or he looks at pers uh, any person, uh, yeah, what it means to be a, an individual uh, or a sentient being, and he divides that being into five parts, if you like. Uh, or he looks at it from five different perspectives, another way of thinking about it. Uh, yeah. And uh, the purpose, the reason why the Buddha looks at a sentient being in this way is because this is like the ground for insight. This is the area where we want to try to get insight into our existence as beings. That is why he divides it into this way. And that is why they are called grasping aggregates, because these are the places where we tend to hold on, we grasp, we attach, we cling, we have craving in this area. Yeah? So if we want to get rid of craving, which we will see shortly is the path to uh, reducing suffering and eventually eliminating suffering completely, if you want to eliminate that craving, uh, you have to have an insight into those khandas, those aggregates, uh, to be able to let go of the desire. Uh, if you understand that these aggregates are problematic, uh, yeah, they're not really worthy of uh, desiring, well, that is where desire stops for these aggregates. Uh. So... Um, you can call them personality factors, yeah? for example. They are factors of personality aspects. Uh, they are aspects of your personality. That's what these things really are. So what the Buddha is saying here is that these five grasped aspects, uh, yeah, they are suffering here. Uh. A bit like saying your personality is suffering here. Uh. <laughs> That's a bit frightening, isn't it? That's a bit kind of unfortunate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He doesn't say it depends on your personality. He doesn't say that if you have a good personality, you are a kind or caring person, then it's okay. No, he says just generally these five aspects are suffering here. So this is very profound, yeah? It's very hard to understand this uh, because uh, it is a very different way of looking at reality and the world and how we normally look at that reality here. So before I... But I'm going to, first of all, let me say a little bit more about what these things are so that we can actually get a, um, an idea of what is going on here. So these five aspects of personality, uh, what are they? Well, what they are, they are roughly equivalent to experience. Yeah, experience is what is happening now. Yeah, whatever you are, whatever is going on in your mind right now, that is experience. Yeah, you are obviously, there's some kind of experience that each one of us has in this moment, unless you are utterly unconscious. Uh, yeah, and uh, <laughs> it is easy to be unconscious after the meal, I, that's true, but hopefully there's a little smidgen, smidgen of consciousness left there. Uh, so it is whatever you are experiencing now, yeah? That is really the five khandas. Uh. So it's actually very easy to understand. Uh, it's one of those interesting things. Very often uh, when I give these retreats, people ask, what are the five khandas? And I say, well, it's obvious, yeah, that's uh, Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vinyana. Okay, next question here. Next question. But no, what are they? I really want to know what they are. Okay, so I explain a bit more. And this is one of those things that people are very often confused about. What are these things? Uh, and what does it mean to get insight into these things? So the simplest way of talking about them is they are experience, yeah? 
what you are experiencing right now that is the five khandhas i'll get back to this in a second to explain it in a bit more detail so if it is experience and then it says in brief the five grasping aggregates are dukkha it means experience is dukkha yeah not just some experiences all experiences are dukkha that's basically what it's saying here so what the buddha is saying is that having no experience is better than having experience yeah isn't that kind of weird and it doesn't mean you know sleeping is better than being awake it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean un being unconscious is better than being conscious uh, because there's still some underlying experience in those states uh, it means the ending of all experience that is the highest and uh, it's very hard to understand what the buddha is talking about but i will show you how to approach this in such a way that it actually starts to make sense uh, it is not that hard to do it's something everyone here can relate to i'm sure if you just uh, kind of talk about this in the right way here so and this is what makes the buddhist teaching so profound uh, and this is what makes them so different from any other spiritual teaching pretty much anywhere else uh, yeah, this kind of thing, this ties in with the idea of non-self and all of this. Uh, all of this comes together in the idea that the five aggregates are, are dukkha. Yeah, the Panchaparanakanda dukkha, sankitena. That is where it all comes together. Yeah. So what do these things mean? Yeah, five khandas. So the first of these five khandas is called rupa in Pali. And uh, rupa is often translated as form so this becomes like the form aggregate the uh, rupa kanda and uh, the rupa kanda is uh, a very big part of our experience so for example rupa being form means like you know when you see every time you see a form and everything we see is really related to form yeah we see shapes we see forms we make sense of the world through those forms see people you see carpets you see ceilings you see all of these things and that is form yeah when you see anything here yeah. so form is a very important part of our experience also because the eyes are such a dominant aspect of our senses yeah they say something like 80 percent of uh, our senses actually uh, comes through the sense of sight so it takes a lot of brain power and mind power to be able to uh, uh, to see yeah. so this is one aspect of form the other aspect of form is the physical touch yeah your body is an aspect of physical form how do you know your body is there well you know it by touching by touch and you also know it by sight uh, so these are the two things that make up uh, the idea of rupa rupa kanda form kanda very important part and one of the things you will learn then is that the idea that rupa kanda is also dukkha it is suffering here and i'll come back uh, in a second to how that actually is um, how you contemplate that in a in an appropriate way here then the, so that is really the rupakanda it's fairly straightforward yeah it's it's, it's uh, you can call it material form if you like or or, or whatever yeah? very similar to that yeah? then there is the vedana kanda and the vedana kanda can be translated as feeling yeah uh, primary feeling something like that yeah? and the vedana kanda is basically dividing the world up into experiences that are nice that you like experiences you don't like and experiences that are neutral yeah every experience can be divided up in this way it can be classified in this way as either something you like something you don't like or something that is neutral yeah and this is a very important part of our experience vedana in many ways is kind of the 
uh, the critical part to understand uh, because Vedana is what gives value to life, uh, what gives value to everything we do. Uh, Vedana is what makes us act. Uh, yeah? Generally speaking, we want to reduce the Dukkha Vedana, the painful experiences, uh, and we want to uh, increase the happy experiences. Uh, and the neutral experiences we don't really care about until you get into very, very deep meditation and then you start caring about the neutral experiences uh, because eventually they are superior even to the happy experiences. Uh. So this is, this is what drives our life. Our life is based on feeling. If we didn't have any feelings, nothing would really have any kind of value. Uh. Yeah, if you see something very beautiful, you go and see a nice sunset or whatever, uh, uh, that sunset would have no meaning unless it gave you a positive feeling. It's the positive feedback which makes it nice. Yeah? The reason you come here to, on the retreat or you want to listen to Buddhist teachings is because they add something to your life. Yeah? That addition to your life is a positive feeling. If Buddhism didn't give you that, you wouldn't be here. You'd be somewhere else. If I didn't kind of think this was a good thing to do, I wouldn't be here either. So this must give me some positive feeling as well. And all of these things come together in this way. So this is like the very fundamental thing in uh, any kind of experience, feeling. It's absolutely crucial to understand what it means to be human. And everything we do pretty much uh, is based on feelings and how we're always pursuing happiness and trying to get rid of suffering here. Uh, so absolutely fundamental. If we didn't have any feelings, we wouldn't be doing anything at all. We have no motivation to do anything here. All sankharas, all craving, all doing we do comes from this root. So understanding feelings fully in the suttas is often associated with awakening experience. Once you understand feelings fully, you also understand the futility of craving and these kind of things. And that leads to awakening as a consequence. So feeling is a very important element then we have sanya, which is the third of these um, five aggregates. Uh, and sanya is usually translated as perception. Uh, yeah? And uh, perception means our ability to make sense of the world. Uh, yeah? So how do you make sense of the world? Well, you perceive colors. Uh, yeah? Brown, you perceive uh, all multicolored, uh, whatever it is. Uh, so this is one, one thing, is, is perception is actually seeing colors. This is actually the example found in the suttas. Uh, but that is the most basic kind of perception. But perception is anything. To make sense of anything, you have to be able to perceive. Yeah. So you see a certain shape, you know that's a person. Uh, you see, uh, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, whenever we kind of classify something and we understand what it is, uh, it comes from perception. Uh, yes, looking out into this room, you see the lights, the ceiling, the loudspeakers, the doors, the exit signs, the, uh, you know, uh, the paper, uh, the, uh, the hot wa the water. Uh, okay. When you talk about it, you have to take have a drink otherwise. Uh. <laughs> so, so we classify things, yeah. And uh, sometimes they have had some people who have been blind from birth, uh, and they were given sight, uh, at, you know, in an operation a long time afterwards. Uh, and actually, they were not able to make any sense of the world because that ability to perceive things and pick out shapes had not been developed when they were children. And all they could see was a big blur, a big blur of colors, yeah? And nothing really made any sense to them. This is an ability that we, uh, that we gain you know, from when we are tiny, tiny, and then gradually build it up. And we're able to make sense of the world in this way. But perception is much more than that. That's just the immediate perception. Yeah. Also the hearing, of course, and all the all the other five senses. Uh. But perception is also about how we use our mind. Uh. 
So, for example, when you see a person, you will classify them according to, you know, various, in various ways. For example, typical one will be whether you consider them as a friendly person or not. Uh, or maybe you see them as an enemy. Hopefully you don't have too many enemies. Uh, yeah, Enemy or neutral people. Uh, yeah, And uh, so this is also a way of perception. Yeah, So all these mental ideas that we have, how we classify people or we... Cre create nationalities out of us, so we create status or or whatever we see in the world. Whenever we have some kind of a mental way of classifying things, uh, that too is perception. Uh. So perception is a very vast area. It's a massive area, and we tend to again hold on to perceptions. Yeah, uh, you might say, "Oh, this morning I didn't really feel myself." If you don't feel yourself when you wake up in the morning, what does that mean? Well, it means that you have a certain perception of who you are as a person. Uh, and if that perception is missing when you wake up in the morning, uh, then it feels you don't really feel quite yourself in the morning when you get out of bed or whatever. Uh, yeah, I, everybody has these kind of experiences sometimes. Uh, so all of this is the area of perception, a very, very vast field to, uh, uh, to kind of explore and to look at, if you like. Uh, and uh, in many ways, you could say that the rupa kanda, the form form kanda, yeah, is really part of perception, if you wish. You could say the vedana kanda also is a kind of uh, perception. So these things are very closely related to each other. The way the reason they are separated out uh, is because these are areas to be looked at independently for the purposes of insight. Uh, so uh, perception, yeah. Then the next uh, aggregate is sankara kanda. And Sankara in the suttas always refers to the will, uh, intention. Uh, yeah, it is actually defined as such in the suttas. Uh, very often, when you hear about Sankara, very often you get you get definitions coming from the Abhidhamma. And uh, in the Abhidhamma, Sankara is divided into twenty-four or twenty-eight different uh, sub-factors, uh, uh, and then that is what often people use as the definition of Sankara. But actually, Sankara in the suttas is defined as Sanchetana. Sanch Chetana is intention, yeah. Chetana uh, kammang vadami. It's kamma is chetana in the in the suttas. So, uh, chetana is is what sankara means in the suttas. Uh, intention. Uh, the the suttas specifically say intention in regard to uh, the five the, the the five external the six senses uh, basically. Uh, so that is sankara. Yeah, sankara is a complex word because it is used in different ways. Sankara also means the result of chaitana. So, for example, when we say sabba, sabba sankara dukkha, that is a different meaning. In that case, it means uh, conditioned phenomena, any phenomena in the world, essentially. Yeah. But it's a very different meaning of sankara. But the basic meaning that you find in the five khandas, uh, that you find in dependent origination, is the will. Uh, yeah, what is that will? Well, that will is every time you do anything, yeah, every time you think anything, yeah, the will lies behind it. Yeah, whatever drives you in your life, whatever makes you do, whatever makes you think, makes you act, whatever makes you a creative person, whatever it is, uh, that is the uh, uh, chaitana, the will lying behind it. Uh, the Buddha says, chaitana is uh, the will is dukkha. Yeah, it's kind of this is really kind of. Now it's getting really revolutionary. Chaitana is dukkha. Yeah, the thing that we kind of fetish sometimes, creativity being kind of uh, uh, all of these things. It's nice to be creative, nothing is okay. But ultimately, the Buddha says it's dukkha. Better not to be creating anything at all, just to be completely still, 
then you actually achieve even higher happiness. Uh, but uh, uh, chaitana, the will, is something that we identify with often in a very deep way. And because of that, uh, uh, it is, uh, can be hard to let go of and it's really worthwhile investigating and comparing the peaceful mind to the active mind. Uh, so this is the will. Yeah, whatever makes you do things in life, uh, the kind of force in the mind that makes you act. And uh, the last one uh, of these five khandhas, uh, these five aspects of personality, is vijnana. Vijnana means consciousness. Uh, consciousness does mean, just simply means the ability to be aware. Yeah. So you have the fact that you are aware right now. Uh, yeah, assuming that you are aware, that is it. But uh, <laughs> if you are aware right now, then that is vijnana, is consciousness that allows you to be aware. Yeah, the fact that you know anything at all, that is consciousness. And uh, so it is like the basic idea of awareness. It always comes with something else. There's no such thing as just awareness. It always has an object. It doesn't come without an object. But an aspect of that experience will be the awareness of the object that you know things are going on, uh, you have experience. Uh. So that's the five khandhas. Uh, yeah? And uh, we could talk about that in, in much more detail, especially things like the sanya khanda and uh, things, because these things are very detailed and very profound. Uh, but uh, instead of doing that, what I want to look at now is how can we possibly understand that these things are dukkha, how can we approach this uh, from a practical perspective? Uh, and it's not that difficult. Yeah, You'll be surprised how easy it is. Very often people, when you read the suttas, it says that we should contemplate the five khandhas. Uh, and by contemplating them, then understanding them in terms of the three characteristics. Yeah, The three characteristics are anicca, dukkha, anatta, uh, impermanent suffering and non-self. Uh, and people often ask, how do we do that? So do we just think about the five khandhas? How do we understand these things as are impermanent? Uh, and don't think about it. Uh, this is kind of the wrong way. It's not going to be very helpful. Uh, what you need to do is you need to have a very different approach. And the best approach uh, to do this uh, is to use ordinary meditation practice as the gateway to understand this. So if you do anapanasati, uh, yeah, if you like to do the mindfulness of breathing and you're having some success in that meditation, that is where the ground for this kind of insight, this is where it starts to happen. Uh. So how does this work? And if you know the Anapanasati Sutta, if you like to read, it's not, not included this time, uh, but it's the um, middle-length sayings, number 118. You can read up on it if you want. Uh. And uh, if you go to that Sutta, you will see that mindfulness of breathing, uh, according to the Buddha, comes in 16 steps, Yeah, 4 times 4. Yeah, it's 16, right? Uh, I hope I haven't forgotten my basic kind of... <laughs> no, it's 4 for 16. So you have like four tetrads. Each element has four uh, yeah, to it. Uh, and uh, the idea, if you look at that sequence, the first 12 are really very much related to calming things down, yeah, becoming peaceful. And the last four are all really about insight and understanding it. Uh, what is it that you have insight in towards the very end there? There's four aspects of that insight. It's called the Anicca Nupassana and Anicca Nupassi, Viraga Nupassi, Niroda Nupassi and Patinisaga Nupassi. And these are all things that relate to the idea of impermanence and unreliability. Anicca is actually impermanence itself. Viraga is fading away. Niroda is 
the ending or cessation of things. Uh, and Patinisaga is the giving up of things. Uh, yeah? So it's all related to impermanence. So all of this is related to insight. Uh, so what is it that you have insight into at that point? Uh, well, what you have insight into, remember the first 12 aspects of of um, mindfulness of breathing is all about calming things down, yeah? Making yourself as calm as you're possibly able to use in this particular path. Uh, so what you have insight to is actually looking back on that process of calming. Uh, and when you look back on that process of calming, that is where the insight happens. It happens by understanding that process. Uh, so it's very easy. All you have to do is look back on what you have already been doing. Uh, and when you do that uh, with the right kind of mindset, uh, you will see that impermanence. And when you see the impermanence, you will also, as part of that, understand dukkha and non-self at the same time. Uh. So what is what happens here? Well, what happens is that when you go through the process of calming down, yeah, uh, and there's two aspects to think about when you go through the process of meditation. If meditation works properly, there's two things that are happening here. One thing is happening, everything is becoming more peaceful. Yeah? So peace, tranquility, calm. This is one of the chief aspects of knowing that things are calming down. Uh, and with that always comes clarity of mind, which is vipassana. So vipassana and samatha always come together uh, they are basically inseparable. It's a very fundamental point about meditation, which is so important to understand, that there isn't really any distinction between samatha and vipassana. You might think that there is a distinction because you hear about samatha meditation, you hear about vipassana meditation, but not really. These are just different labels, but both of them lead to both samatha and vipassana if they are done in the right way. In fact, the suttas don't have this idea of samatha meditation, vipassana meditation. This is just modern terminology. The suttas have instead samatha and vipassana, but not kind of conjoined with the idea of meditation practice. Yeah? In the suttas, it's almost always is found as a compound, samatha and vipassana together. So in other words, these are um, come together as two aspects of the progress of meditation. Those two aspects will always be calm and seeing things clearly. I don't like the translation insight. I prefer seeing things clearly. There are two aspects of the same process of a meditation that actually works. So this is the first thing. Yeah, samatha vipassana gets deeper. Especially it's easy to look at, look at it from the point of view of samatha, which is calm, because it's very easy to know what is meant by calm. We can kind of feel that very very clearly. The other thing that happens in meditation practice that works is that you feel better. Yeah, positive feelings arise. The, uh, the body starts to disappear. The negative aspects of existence start to uh, gradually diminish. And instead, you start to feel happy, positive feelings, joy, yeah, a gladness of mind, even profound bliss as you go into very deep states. So these are the two things that show you that you're heading in the right direction. You want to take that path as far as possible, to come as peaceful and as blissed out as you possibly can. The deeper that path goes, the easier it is going to be to have insight afterwards. Why is that? Well, the reason is because as you go through that path, yeah, as one of the things that you will notice is that these five khandhas, change your experience changes as you go through the sequence so if you take something like the rupakanda yeah which is uh, the body and sight you will notice that the deeper you go in meditation 
the less there is of the body. Yeah, the body is fading away. Remember one of the way inside here is viraganupasi, the contemplation of fading away. The body is fading away here. First of all, the body is like changing. This is anichanupasi. The body is not stable, you know that. Then it starts to fade away. And if you go deep enough in your meditation, the body is gone. Yeah? Niroda nupasi, contemplation of cessation. This is the first of the five aggregates, rupa kanda, the material form. You see the fading away of that material form. You have already closed your eyes. Eventually the sense of sight turns off completely. The body disappears. Yeah? All rupa comes to an end in this way, ultimately. The deeper you go in the sequence, the more powerful will be your insight afterwards. Yeah? You see the impermanence of this. You are seeing it through direct and immediate experience, not through some kind of intellectual exercise. And that is why this is the most powerful way of having insight. And if it ceases completely, then the impermanence is complete. That is when you get a lot of insight into the idea of this body. You can exist without the body. Not only can you exist without the body, but it is a far superior experience. And this is where you get insight into suffering and happiness. Yeah? When the body is gone, wow, it is so nice. It is so, such a beautiful thing. And you understand that the body, together with the five senses, are dukkha. When it's fading away, the deeper you go, the happier it is. When it's completely gone, that's when the highest happiness occurs. This is how you can start to see that the body, rupa, is dukkha through your direct experience. Give up the body a little bit, you feel better already. Give up the body more, you feel even better. Yeah? And after a while, the penny drops. Yes, body is dukkha. Giving up completely is kind of really high amount of bliss. Yeah, so it's very simple. Yeah, insight is not something very profound and hard to do. You don't have to kind of do some kind of strange exercise or whatever. All you have to do is to calm down. And this is the beautiful thing about the Anapanasati meditation, is that the Buddha specifically says, all you have to do is watch the breath. And that watching the breath takes you all the way to full awakening. You don't have to do anything apart from that, because it includes the insight as part of the experience. It's so simple, really. Yeah? You don't have to make anything fancy out of this. And then these things happen as a consequence. So that is the uh, Rupa Kanda. Similar thing happens with the other Kandas. Uh, take the Vedana Kanda. Yeah? Vedana is the unpleasant, the pleasant and the neutral aspect of existence. Uh, and as your meditation progresses, uh, first of all, the suffering in the body or the suffering or the, or the dukkha you have starts to di disappear. Uh, yeah? The deeper, the more peaceful you, you are, uh, the less suffering there is, uh, either in your mind or in your physical body. Uh. And there comes a point, as you go deeper, that all that is left is really pleasant experiences. Uh. The dukkha, the body, is co almost completely gone, faded into the background. Uh. All you feel is positive feelings. Uh. Yeah? And you, can, you will know that as the body fades away. Uh. Then... When you go beyond that, and even the happy feelings start to transform, they become more refined. The coarser aspects of the happy feelings, the piti, and these things start to fade away, and you are left with a very refined happiness as you go through this. So you can see the happy feelings also becoming more refined. And if you take it deep enough, and this is getting very, very deep now, like you know, into the jhana realms and even beyond the jhanas, 
then you will find that even happy feelings eventually ceases and all you are left with is neutral feeling and neutral feeling is more happy than happy feeling according to the buddhist path yeah it's one of those kind of remarkable things about uh, this path of uh, meditation here. but again you start to get insight into feeling here yeah you start to see how it uh, how feelings don't have to be there painful feeling can be completely gone here. Yeah, you start to understand how problematic they are because you can see the mental state without those things and compare. Yeah, you really understand that pain is a problem. Then you start to see that happy feelings can be classified as well. Some are better than others. Uh, a neutral feeling is the highest kind of uh, uh, feeling that we can have. Uh, again, you get insight into feelings through direct experience by seeing it for yourself. It is almost unmistakable. You cannot avoid almost having these insights. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why uh, samatha yeah, always comes with vipassana because you see the whole process uh, and then you understand what is going on as a consequence. Uh, so sometimes people say that you know, samatha is not good because it doesn't lead to insight, but uh, it isn't. I don't know, when I hear that, I think, you know, have you really tried it properly? I, I <laughs> because it is so obvious that these things must go together. Uh, yeah, and uh, so it, 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 they are just, go, like, you know, the, these are two sides of the same coin. You can't avoid having insight uh, when you uh, do the samatha properly and you take it in a deep way. Uh. So um, perception is the same. Yeah, perception gradually changes as you go deeper and deeper. You lose the perception of the body. You lose the perception of the five senses. The five senses fade away until ultimately all you are left with is the mind. That's a massive change in perception when all the five senses are gone. Yeah, so you understand perception itself is very unstable. And the more refined, the more, the less there is going on in the mind, the more happy you are less is more no yeah less is less more i guess in in the one sense yeah less is more you feel more happy so that therefore less is more on the buddhist path uh, yeah and more is less uh, less is more and more is less uh, and uh, less is also less and more is also more uh, so <laughs> so it's very confusing but you, you you know i'm sure you know what i'm you know what i mean <laughs> or do you i'm not sure anyway so the idea is anyway the less there is in the mind, the more empty you are inside. Yeah, the simpler everything is, the calmer it is, the more narrow the field of perception is, uh, the more happy you are. So by giving up, by reducing the kanda of perception, the less there is left, left of it, uh, the more happy you are. The simple perceptions are much more beautiful than the complicated ones. Uh, they're the ones that lead to peace. They're the ones that lead to happiness. Uh, in a jhana state, the perception is incredibly simple. Yeah, it's just a perception of bliss, pretty much. That's pretty much all there is. Uh, but even prior to that, there is a perception maybe of a nimitta or something like that. A very, very simple perception uh, and very beautiful. Uh. So you understand that there's all this complexity here. Uh, yeah, all of these things going on. Uh, you start to get the idea that perception is problematic. Uh. Same thing with the body. The body fades away. The body is problematic. The same thing with Vedana. The less there is of the Vedana and the feeling, the better it is. Yeah, The fading away of these things is a positive thing. Yeah? And the penny starts gradually start to see that the five khandas are dukkha because the less there is of them, the better you feel. Yeah, yeah This is how you kind of approach this problem. The less there is of the five khandas, uh, the better it is. And then you start to extrapolate. Uh, the extrapolation tells you if I take this all the way, then probably uh, I will also feel the highest happiness as a consequence. Uh, then you have the Sankara Kanda. 
Sankara is the will or the intention. Yeah? And of course, one of the things that is very obvious in meditation practice is that as you become more peaceful, the will dies down. Yeah? There's less activity going on in the mind. The less activity there is, gee, it is so nice. Yeah? Stillness of the mind, you start to realize, is far superior to activity. Yeah? And uh, the reason why we are such, we, we, people tend to be so active, and the reason why we want to create and do stuff uh, is basically because we identify with the doer. Uh, you see yourself as doers, and whenever you see yourself as a doer, it means that if you act, you gratify that feeling of being the doer. Uh, and because you gratify that, it feels good to act. Uh, but uh, once you get over that, you don't worry so much about whether you are the doer or not, uh, and you look at it more objectively from a p p position of non-self, if you like, uh, you start to see that actually all this doing uh, is a pain. Uh, it's dukkha. It's a problem. Uh, the more peaceful you are, the better it is. Uh, and gradually, 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 you take that peace to the highest peak. Uh, and the highest peak is in a jhana state where the doer is completely gone. Uh, what does it feel like? It's completely blissful. Yeah? And you start to understand the doer is actually part of the problem. Uh, and this is very interesting because the doer is so fetish, fetishized in our world. Yeah? Creative people are kind of you know, really looked upon as some of the, kind of the cream of the cream of our society. And you know, of course, if, you, if the economy is the most important thing and we want to kind of develop our economy or we want to create nice things for the world, and of course, creativity is good because it helps to boost the economy, it helps to kind of create nice things in the world, nice art and nice whatever it is, of course. So from that point of view, it is useful. But if you look at it from a spiritual point of view, there is a far more profound way of thinking about happiness in the world uh, and that is actually when you give up this idea of creativity and doing all together uh, and then you understand that the will itself uh, is problematic uh, so that's a really major change in paradigm how we think about the world uh, it's a really kind of overturning things in a in a very big way when we look at it like that uh. and then uh, there is the last one uh, and that is consciousness itself uh, yeah that too is kind of involved in this whole process because the uh, awareness that we have of the world uh, is related to our five or our six senses, six one being the mind. Uh, and as the senses start to shut down, uh, yeah, this is what happens in meditation, you become less and less aware of the external world. Uh, you are discarding large part of what it means to be aware. Uh, you can no longer see, uh, you can no longer taste anything, you can no longer touch anything. Uh, the hearing is the last sense that goes in meditation practice. Eventually the hearing goes as well, and all you're left with is with the mind. And when all of these five senses are gone, again, you understand this is a far preferable state to any of the senses actually being active. Only the mind is left, and then you start to chip away at the mind. Yeah, And gradually you give up the mental sense as well, gradually stage by stage. This is what samatha is about. And you start to see even awareness itself ultimately is a problem it's dukkha it's better to reduce that awareness to a minimum and eventually you kind of extrapolate well if i have no awareness at all perhaps that is the highest happiness and that is what the buddha says you find suttas where he says this is the bahu vedana sutta in the majjhimanikaya 59 where he says that uh, the highest happiness is where perception and feeling cease altogether yeah where all uh, kind of awareness ceases that is the highest happiness. But how is that possible? How can you have the highest happiness when you can't feel anything? That's, that's the whole point. Yeah? 
That's the whole point of it. Uh, the point is that not feeling is preferable to feeling. Uh, that is what the Buddha says in there. So this is very, very profound. But you can see how you can gain insight into this by starting to see the process in action and how gradually you're moving towards that goal. And then you can see what is happening. And then you can see why these five khandhas are dukkha. And many of you will already know what I'm talking about. Yeah, because many of you have had some really nice meditation experiences. And even if you haven't had really nice meditation experiences, at least you become a little bit peaceful. And that little bit of peace is a sign that the five khandhas are dukkha. The more peace you have, the less of these five khandhas there is, almost by definition. If you don't think, for example, even if your mind just becomes peaceful, you don't think for a second, that is a reduction in the five khandhas why? Because the thinking mind is full of perceptions and feelings and will and all this kind of stuff. When that is gone, those five khandhas have already been eliminated to a, to a fairly substantial degree. Yeah, Already you understand the power of what is going on there. And this is how you then contemplate these things. And you start to get a handle on the most profound aspect of the Buddhist path. And start to understand why it is that meditation can be so incredibly blissful uh, and this whole thing is kind of starts to come together for you uh. so there you are that is um, in brief about the five khandhas i'm going to look more uh, at the five khandhas tomorrow i'm going to move on tomorrow morning i'm at the the uh, simile of the lump of foam which comes up next uh, and uh, that is i'm going to look at this in a bit more detail so uh uh, again, if you have any questions about this and anything doesn't make any sense to you or whatever, please feel free to ask questions about this because this is a this is very profound, uh, and you don't have to worry too much about it. Yeah, uh, the most important thing is that you enjoy the path and that you kind of are able to contemplate a little bit, as I was suggesting before, uh, on these kind of more basic aspects of the path. That's what really matters. Uh, but it's important that we, I feel, that we kind of teach Buddhism complete yeah all the aspects are taught so people understand the profundity of the path it's a, i think it's a very important part of it uh, because then you start to understand uh, things like uh, why the monastic life makes sense yeah uh, you can start to see why that makes sense when you start to read these things uh, and uh, that can be very useful because uh, uh, if someone is inclining towards monasticism uh, of course it's very handy to uh, to know why that life actually is a sensible way of living here Anyway, that is uh, all for now. Uh, so please keep on enjoying yourself. Uh, and there will be some more interviews at 4 o'clock. Uh, uh, apart from that, we'll see you again this evening at, uh, what is it, 6 o'clock or thereabouts. Uh.